This Saturday at noon, fourth-ranked Florida State visits Clemson. Walters is your spot for all FSU football games this fall. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Pitch with the runner going from first is lined to the left center, a base hit. Vargas trotting home from third. Young speeding to third, being waved home. Throw goes to second. Now Anderson to the plate. Not in time. Young scores running on the pitch. And he scores all the way from first base. And now it's the Nationals four. And the White Sox won. 4-1 Nationals. Base is loaded. The 1-0 pitch. Swing a long drive, left field, forget about it. This is going to be a grand slam for Lane Thomas. He brings them all in. Nationals 8, White Sox 1. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, September 21st, 2023, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We on Wednesday afternoon had something that had become way too rare, a Nationals blowout win. The Nats entered Wednesday with just six wins over the team's previous 22 games. Five of the six wins were one-run wins. And actually, if you back up a bit further, six of the Nats' previous seven wins had been one-run wins. Not only had the Nats not been winning much lately, but the wins had been these, you know, grind them out, uh, white knuckle, grit your teeth type games. But the Nats on Wednesday afternoon got not just a second consecutive win, but a rather comfortable win. This most certainly was not a one run win, a 13-3 win over the Chicago White Sox at Nationals Park to win the series two games to one. The Nats scored 13 runs, totaled 14 hits, worked seven walks, went five for 18 with runners in scoring position. The 14 hits were comprised of three home runs, five doubles, and six singles. The Nats for this season now are 68 and 85. Mark, this was some offensive display by the Nats on Wednesday afternoon. We had not seen anything like this in quite a while, Al. So they had not won a game by more than four runs since August 11th against the A's. They hadn't won a game by more than six runs since July 22nd against the Giants, and I didn't even realize this till after the fact. The last time they won a game by 10 or more runs would be April 29th. That's not April 29th this year. That's April 29th last year in San Francisco. The winning pitcher that day, remember Aaron Sanchez? That's how far back we have to go since they had a true blowout win like this. So as you said, it feels like every single game they've won, even when things were going well earlier in the summer, they were all one run, two run, 
hang on to the seat of your pants kind of wins. They have not had nearly enough of these kind of games. And when they finally did, I think it allowed everybody take a deep breath, relax, go out, have some fun and swing for the fences for a change. And boy, wasn't that nice to see. It was for sure. The Nats have nine games left in this uh, regular season. Would have to go five and four to avoid 90 losses. Uh, Don't know how likely that is, given that the nine games are going to be against the Atlanta Braves and the Baltimore Orioles. But, you know, you never know. And the Nats in this game beat up on a team that has been worse than them this season. I mean, there aren't many teams that you look at as being beneath the Nats in the overall major league standings. But the White Sox are one of those teams, and uh, the Nats did an appropriate beatdown of the White Sox on Wednesday afternoon. So there were so many offensive heroes for the Nats in this game. We can break this down in a lot of ways. I guess we could start with this, though. There were three different Nats players who each got on base four times in this game. One of them got on base four times in a rather unconventional manner, talking about Lane Thomas. So he, on Wednesday afternoon, as the Nats starting right fielder and number two batter, went one for two with a grand slam, two walks, and a hit by pitch. So yeah, got on base four times. Did get thrown out on an attempt to steal a second base, but Lane Thomas in an at's four-run third inning, a two-out grand slam to left field for an 8-1 Nats lead, 425 feet per stat cast. Look, Lane Thomas has cooled off a bit, certainly has not had the post-All-Star break portion of the season that he had prior to the All-Star break, but he still for this season is number one among all qualified Nats players in OPS at 794. And it has felt like throughout this season, even when he hasn't hit that well, you know, he's kind of going down and then he'll do something big or he'll have a nice little stretch. And I thought that we had that in this game on Wednesday afternoon. Like he has not been great lately, but it's not like he's been terrible. Has had struggles with runners in scoring position, if you've talked about, but certainly did not have those struggles and that played appearance that resulted in the grand slam. Well, this was an amazing night and day performance from what he did on Tuesday. We talked about it last night. He came up a bunch of times with a chance to drive in a run in that game, the second game of the series. And in each case, swung at the first pitch and made an out on the first pitch. He did that three times in the game. And, you know, sometimes you're your own biggest critic and and you can convince yourself that you need to make a change. Sometimes you need somebody else to do it for you. In this case, that someone else was his wife, Chase. They got in the car after the game to drive home on Tuesday night. And according to Lane, I got in the car last night and I was kind of in a bad mood and she was just like, kind of just suck it up and stop swinging at those pitches, which was kind of surprised that, you know, that came out of her mouth. So I was like, I can't have her yelling at me after the game. So. <laughs> so she knew it. I think anybody who was watching these games understands that he was way too aggressive, swinging at the first pitch, often at pitches out of the zone or breaking balls and making weak contact. And so what, to me, what was so fascinating about this game, at least the first five innings, his first four plate appearances, four times up at the plate, he only swung once. And the one was the grand slam. Everything else he took, there was the hit by pitch after he took a strike. Both walks were on four pitches and then the grand slam on a 1-0 pitch. Just a little reminder of, hey, it's okay to be patient up there. Wait for a pitch that you can really do something with. And he got a hanging curveball that was made for hitting it a long way for a grand slam. So good on him and good on Chase Thomas for recognizing it and telling the truth to her husband in a way that sometimes only a wife can do. Well, 
Walt Riniak and Chase Thomas, two of the great hitting coaches in the history of baseball. So good job to Mrs. Thomas uh, for that advice right there. And Lane Thomas, I mean, Grand Slam was awesome to see that on Wednesday afternoon. C.J. Abrams on Wednesday afternoon. He is the Nats starting shortstop and number one batter got on base four times. He went two for three with two doubles and two two-out walks. Abrams in an Nats one-run first, a leadoff first pitch opposite field double to left field. Abrams in an Nats three-run second, a one-out two-run opposite field double to the left center field gap for a 4-1 Nats lead. Abrams in the Nats four-run third, a two-out walk. Abrams in the bottom of the sixth, a two-out walk. The doubles were great. I actually, though, am more fascinated by the walk. So first of all, if you look at C.J. Abrams over these last few months, bad June, great July, bad August, and now a great September. Abrams in this month of September has a batting average of just 233, but his on-base percentage for this month is 352, which of course speaks to the walks and the much-improved job that he's doing of drawing walks. This to me has been as encouraging as maybe anything with Abrams because he was not a walks guy as of, you know, really just a few weeks ago, and he really has become one in recent weeks. And uh, oh, by the way, he in September is slugging 550. So, you know, I said to you a few weeks back, I thought it was important that Abrams had a good September because I didn't want to look back on his season as saying, well, he had one good month and that was it. Well, no, it's now multiple good months and uh, he had a really good game on Wednesday. Yeah, you know, I was looking at his numbers just a few days ago and thinking to myself, boy, these don't look as good as I thought they would. The batting average was down to the 230s and his on-base percentage was under 300. I'm thinking to myself, you're a leadoff hitter. We're thinking of you as his prime Exciting leadoff man who both hits for power and has speed, and you're going to end up with an on-base percentage under 300. Well, to his credit, the last few days, he has turned it back on. He's up to 305 in the on-base department, and the walks have been just as important in that as the hits. So yeah, those are all the things that over time, he's got to learn how to do, how to be more consistent with. Same thing. I feel like we have this conversation, almost everybody on the team, it's the same thing. Just be more selective. You don't have to swing at the first good pitch you see. Be comfortable being deep in the count, having two strikes on you. Find the right pitch to do damage on. If you get a first pitch right over the plate and you can do something with it and you're looking for it, great. If not, take it. Work the at-bat. Work the pitcher. Maybe you get a walk out of it. Maybe you don't. But at the very least, you make the other guy throw more pitches and maybe get him out of the game sooner. And you don't have these nights where we've seen too often where the starters reach in the sixth inning, the seventh inning with really low pitch counts that you can't continue at that path in this game today. That's just not the way to go about it. You've got to be more selective than that. So I think that's a big part of C.J. Abrams' development here late in the season. The Nats next season offensively need more of two things, more home runs and more walks. And if you get more of those two things, you're going to be a much better team offensively. And if more of those two things comes at the expense of you know fewer singles or more strikeouts, that's okay. More homers, more walks, please. But we saw certainly some good plate selection in this game, including from Luis Garcia. He on Wednesday afternoon got on base four times. He was an ad starting second baseman and number six batter, three for four with two doubles, a single, and a walk. And three of those four things happened to begin run-scoring innings for the Nats. Uh, Garcia in the Nats three-run second, a leadoff opposite field double through the left side of the infield. Garcia in the Nats four-run third, a leadoff single into right field despite having been down in the count at 1.12. Garcia in the Nats two-run fourth, a double off the bottom of the right center field wall. And Garcia in the Nats one-run eighth, 
a leadoff walk. It's easy to forget Luis Garcia was the Nats' regular number two batter at one point this season. That changed as the season went on because of his struggles. You know, he's not done a ton since he got brought back up to the majors, but he has had a few good games lately, and uh, he obviously had one on Wednesday. He's been better since that Milwaukee series started to turn it on, and after that first big game, Davey Martinez said, that was great. Now we need to see it consistently day in and day out. It's only been a few days since then, but he has maintained that to some extent. So that's good. I think this last nine games of the year, you want to rank the importance in terms of the players that are still here of what these last nine games mean. Luis Garcia is very high on that list. He is assured of nothing going into next spring and next season. He needs to finish on a strong note and show them that he should still be considered their second baseman going into 2024 and beyond. And I mean, obviously, when you send a guy down the way they did, that's an indication that they aren't confident that you are the answer there. And you come back, and I think he was two for his first 22 after the promotion. That's not going to help your case at all either. So if he can have a strong final week plus here to the season, it goes a long way, I think, toward shaping the organization's feelings about him going into the offseason. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the potential Nats building blocks and the 2023 seasons that those guys have had, I think Garcia has had the worst season. I mean, you know, like you said, he got demoted to the minors and it wasn't just a performance thing. The team was pretty open about this. This was a work ethic slash attitude thing as well. So, yeah, you know, I don't know that he can really change the overall trajectory of the season in these remaining nine regular season games, but he certainly could end the season in a nice way and maybe go into the offseason feeling a little bit better about things. But good job by him on Wednesday. Hey, are you a law firm partner or an associate stuck on an underperforming franchise? Do what Nationals legend Max Scherzer did. Demand a trade. He left the New York Mets, right? And uh, ended up on a contender in the American League. There might be greener pastures and a lot more money at another law firm for you and your team at another law firm, not to mention better management and better services to offer your clients. The law firm lateral partner market is still red hot, and Nats Chat sponsor Mason Kalfas is the best legal recruiter in Washington, D.C., or anywhere. And Mason wants to help you find a new and better home. Mason Kalfas, he is the Scott Boris of legal recruiters. Put him to work for you. Mason will sit down with you and understand your practice and career or financial goals. He will confidentially discuss your candidacy with law firms that are contenders, not 60 win teams. You can reach Mason or any of his team of seven recruiters at 202-486-3535 or email Mason at mason at zenith legal.com. That's 202-486-3535 or via email at mason at zenithlegal.com. Go Nats! Uh, The Nats will be contenders very soon and you can be a contender even sooner. Here's the kick and the pitch. Swing by Manessis and a drive to deep left. Way back. Going, going, and gone. Goodbye. Bang! Zoom goes Joey Manessis on a fastball from Davey Garcia. He lands that ball halfway up section 104. And now Joey Manessis has an RBI. Home run number 13, RBI number 85. And 86 with a two-run homer with Thomas aboard. And it's now the Nationals 12. And the White Sox 1.
I said the Nats hit three home runs. We had the Lane Thomas Grand Slam. We also had homers from Joey Manessis and Dominic Smith. Uh, Manessis homered for a second consecutive game. He had a big game on Wednesday. He is a Nats starting DH and number three batter. Three for six with a two-run homer and two singles. So Manessis in a Nats two-run fifth, a one-out full count, two-run homer on a bomb to left field for a 12-1 Nats lead despite having been down at 1.12. The homer went to projected 410 feet per stat cast. And also homering for the Nats on Wednesday afternoon was Dominic Smith, who all of a sudden has become Mr. Home Run. He is the Nats starting first baseman and number five batter, one for five, but the one was a solo homer. Two run fourth, a leadoff full count, opposite field home run to left center field for a 9-1 Nats lead, despite having been down to the count at 1.12. I'm not sure if Mike Clevenger approved of how Dom handled this homer, but Dominic Smith for this month of September is slugging 6-11. He has five home runs and four doubles in this month of September. On the rankings of the most important things for the Nats this month, how Dominic Smith is doing is not that high up, but on the rankings of the most surprising things for the Nats this month, how Dominic Smith is doing might be number one. This is pretty stunning that he's hitting like this. I'll give you another stunning fact. At the moment after that home run, I looked this up. I couldn't believe it. I wasn't searching for this. I was stunned when I discovered it in looking up some other stuff. Dominic Smith and Cabert Ruiz at that moment had the same OPS on the season. Would you have ever imagined that that would be the case? Now, before everybody jumps on me for this one, I understand that's not the one and only way to evaluate players and that an OPS for a first baseman, there's a much higher standard of expectation than there is for a catcher. Cabert Ruiz has been one of the better offensive catchers in the majors and Dom Smith has been one of the worst offensive first basemen in baseball. So there is a little bit of a grading on a curve when you do that. But still, I think our perception has been that Caber Ruiz has been way more productive than Dominic Smith has. And at least in that moment, it changed later in the game because Ruiz had a double and Smith didn't do anything else. But our perception would be that Ruiz has been far more valuable to them offensively. Now, look, I do think given the alternatives, given the situation the team is in and given the contract status, he'll be arbitration eligible. I think Dom Smith probably comes back next year as their starting first baseman. That could change as others develop. If you were going to go spend money on somebody this winter, that maybe would be a spot you would do it in. But the sense I get, whether you agree with it or not, the sense I get is that they really value his defense, his clubhouse, you know, leadership, and just the fact that he is hitting finally here at the end of the season to make those numbers look a little bit better. I feel like that's going to be the plan going into the season. Not that makes him a part of the long-term plan, but for now, as they wait to see what else they have and who else maybe gets moved to first base over time, or if that's a position they feel like they need to upgrade from the outside later on, if I had to guess right now, I think Dom Smith is their first baseman on opening day 2024. Wow. I don't think there are many people doing cartwheels off uh, hearing you say that. Now, look, It's not like he's going to cost you a ton. So bringing him back would not be the end of the world. And look, bringing him back would not have to mean that he has to be your number one first baseman. Like things could play out to where he ends up not being your every game first baseman. But uh, yeah, that is not something that I think most people would have uh, been yearning for prior to the start of this show. And uh, well, I, I guess we'll see. Here's the thing though, right? You have to be so careful with September stats and what guys do in the final months of MLB regular seasons. And I know it's a little different now because you don't have all of the September call up. So maybe the numbers aren't as, as skewed as they were in yesteryear. 
But I think you always got to be leery of if a guy is one way for five months and then all of a sudden in September is another way. Is that really what he now is? Or, you know, did things just kind of work out to where he ended the season well, but it's not really telling moving forward. I mean, we have a pretty good sample size at this point of what Dominic Smith is and isn't as a major league player. He does have talent. He had some good seasons for the Mets, but he lacked consistency. And so never able to become that like fixture for the Mets at first base because, you know, his good could be good, but he just, he too often wasn't good. Yeah, no, and a hundred percent valid what you're saying about September stats. And I'll throw another thing out there. The majority of his home runs have come in lopsided games one way or the other. There have not been a lot of meaningful home runs. His performance with runners in scoring position has not been good. Two outs, runners in scoring position has been awful. So, yeah, I do not take any of this to suggest that uh, he has blossomed or that he's figured something out or that he's become a major contributor for them. I think it has more to do with his affordability, his defense, his likability, and the fact that I think deep down, they don't want to feel like they have to spend big money on a first baseman that somebody will develop, whether it's a prospect like a Yo-Yo Morales who gets moved from third base to first base, whether it's ultimately Joey Manessis ending up there, or maybe you get to a point that everything else is set and you got good players at each position and you still could use a bigger bopper at first base. Then you go out and get somebody either via trade or free agent. But like if you're looking for that big splash to upgrade I don't think they're at a point right now where that's a priority for them. And I think they're content to stick with what they have there for all the reasons I outlined. So the Nats will not be pursuing Pete Alonso, is what you're saying. <laughs> we should not be holding our breath on that one. Uh, okay. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi here to tell you about another great deal being offered right now by Window Nation to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Window Nation is offering you even more. Uh, when it comes to new windows, Window Nation always gives you more, but now Window Nation is giving you even more, more. <laughs> uh, the more windows that you buy, the more that you save up to 50% off, plus a lot more. Pay nothing for two full years. Another amazing deal on the great windows that Window Nation can provide to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Save up to 50% with the purchase of a house of windows. You know, even given what has been happening with interest and mortgage rates, Window Nation still is keeping 0% interest for two years. Upgrade the look and value of your home. Save big money on your energy bills with great Window Nation windows. You know, Window Nation has installed nearly 2 million windows with a 96% perfection rating, uh, making Window Nation one of the top window companies in the country. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com and tell Window Nation that you want the great deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Again, the more windows that you buy, the more that you save up to 50% off Plus, you pay nothing for two full years. If you have been thinking about getting new windows, this is the deal on which to capitalize. 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi from the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, it feels good. I mean, honestly, if there were two at-bats, I'd want back and be the walk to Mankata um, and the, the double to Vaughn. You know, even um, the pitch wasn't executed, but I had him one too. So, you know, I executed pitch and, you know, maybe we get a different result. But, um, yeah, it's just staying tough with my stuff, staying in the zone, kind of just, you know, say I throw two balls in a row, kind of looking up at the scoreboard, know we have a eight-run, ten-run lead and, you know, just, just pitching the contact and trying to get these guys out and get us back in the dugout. Well, the Nats' uh, starting pitcher in this 13-3 win over the White Sox on Wednesday afternoon was Josiah Gray. Was coming off what he did in the Nats' 2-0 loss at the Pittsburgh Pirates last Thursday afternoon, September 14th. He made that start as it being his first start in 11 days, and he was good for just the second time in seven starts, but he was really good. Two runs, six in the third innings, 10 strikeouts, no walks. Well, Gray on Wednesday afternoon in this win over the White Sox had a mixed outing. Now, the disappointment would be that he lasted for just five innings in a game in which the Nats didn't just score 13 runs, but scored 12 of the runs over the first five innings. Over Gray's five innings in the game, the Nats scored 12 runs. We all know the deal. Your team erupts for 12 runs over the first five innings of a game. You as a starting pitcher need to go out there, eat up innings, especially considering that the Nats are in the midst of this brutal stretch of 17 consecutive days without a scheduled off day. The Nats' last off day was September 7th. Their next scheduled off day, not until this Monday, September 25th. Now, Gray on Wednesday afternoon in his five innings of work only allowed one run. So that was good. I mean, it's not like he was, you know, terrible out there or anything like that. But one run in five innings, gave up five hits, two doubles and three singles. He issued three walks and a wild pitch, four strikeouts. But this was another pitch inefficient performance by Gray. Five innings, 91 pitches, 52 strikes versus 39 balls. What'd you think of Josiah Gray? Yeah, not nearly as good as he was in Pittsburgh last week, obviously. This was a little more reminiscent of some of those good starts he had earlier in the year where he still was in trouble a lot of the time, but he got out of it, kept the damage to a minimum, and then probably didn't go as deep as you would like. I thought first three innings really good. He's at 36 pitches after three innings. For Josiah Gray, that's fantastic and not the kind of thing we have seen regularly. And then for whatever reason, beginning in the fourth and continuing through the fifth, he kind of hit a wall and some very long at-bats, and he ends up throwing, what, almost 55 pitches over those last two innings, despite not giving up a run. So I don't know if he was wearing down. I don't know if it's just nearing the end of the long season and the stamina isn't quite there anymore. You would have loved to see him just take that lead and run with it and go deep in the game and give all these guys in the bullpen a break. It didn't happen, but 
I feel like given what his struggles have been for a lot of the second half of the year, you kind of have to accept these starts now and just say, hey, good job. At least you're finishing the season on a higher note. He should have one more start. He suggested it's probably going to be against the Orioles next week. You'd love to see him finish strong. His ERA is exactly at four right now going into that last start. And I know it's semantics and does it really make a difference in the end? No, but I feel like psychologically, if he could end the year at 399 versus 401, to me, that looks a whole lot better on the back of your baseball card, does it not? Oh, yeah. I said this, I think, the last time he pitched. I really want him to finish the season with a sub-4 ERA. I feel like psychologically, he needs that, and we need that. This guy was the bright spot of this Nats season, right? The lone Nats all-star, and you don't want to see him finish the season with an ERA of 4 worse. Like, let's get that bad boy under 4, so we'll see. Nats bullpen in this 13-3 win over the White Sox on Wednesday afternoon. Three Nats relievers combined to allow two runs, one earned in four innings. Jose A. Ferrer, perfect top of the six. Andres Machado, Perfect top of the seventh. And Thaddeus Ward, two runs, one earned in two innings. Second relief appearance for Thaddeus Ward in recent days. The thinking had been that he was going to make a start or two. Now, I suppose that's at least somewhat in question. Now, I know that Davey Martinez, during his pregame press conference with you guys, said that the Nats are skipping Trevor Williams' next start. So where are we with Thaddeus Ward potentially getting a start? I'm not entirely sure. (laughs) When he told us that they were going to skip Williams' turn, but then bring him back to make another start some point next week. My thought was, okay, that seems to open the door for for Ward to make that start that we keep hearing them about. And, and you know, he went through his minor league rehab. He was starting games, built up to have a heavier workload. And you thought, okay, this is all mapping out the way that they said that it would. And then he pitches two garbage innings. And so I'm not totally sure now what they're looking at. One possibility is Jackson Rutledge could pitch that game on normal rest. He would go Tuesday and then Sunday if they went back to a five-man rotation. And then there's two days off next week, Monday and Thursday. So they have the luxury here of essentially rearranging their entire rotation however they want for the last week. So they don't have to stay in order. They can skip over Williams' turn, then slot him back in somewhere else. Maybe Thad Ward gets one start on the last game of the season, something like that, when Perhaps the Braves have nothing left to play for because they've wrapped up home field advantage. I don't know exactly what the intention is there, but I will say this. If you're trying to make the case that you deserve to make some starts, this really wasn't it for Thad Ward. That was a long eighth inning. Some of it was some bad defense and just wasn't pretty though. And for a guy that you want to get a look at and say, hey, let's see five innings out of you. I really haven't seen a whole lot here that says, yeah, this is a guy I want to see that much of. Would there be value in one start? Like, what exactly would be accomplished by that at this point, do you think? Well, we saw what one one start could do for uh, Joanna Doan a couple of years ago. <laughs> it got him in the opening day rotation next year. So, no, I don't think it's anything like that. My sense, look, you have a Rule 5 draftee. The goal is just get through the season without having to give up on him, and now you can keep him in your organization. He is most likely going to open next year in the minor leagues. I think they'll have him work as a starter and view him as a depth option for down the road. You know, he's not going to be viewed as one of those top starting prospects the way that we're talking about Cavalli and Rutledge and others, but you're going to need starters at some point down the road. So my guess is that's what they're viewing and they figure, hey, a quote unquote meaningless game at the end of the season, let's put him out there and see how he handles it. But it's been a little odd. Everything we heard about and everything that we saw during that long rehab process said, We're building him up to start, and we want to get a look at him as a starter down the stretch. 
And now that he's back, he's pitched out of the bullpen a couple of garbage innings and doesn't really add up. The two things don't go together. No, there's that. And there's the Tanner Rainey situation where it felt like a fait accompli that he would be pitching for the Nats at the major league level in September. And now it's really starting to feel like he will not be pitching for the Nats at the major league level in September. Yeah, another one. They just they didn't feel like they have to force that if he wasn't really comfortable and wasn't ready. He threw a bullpen session in front of all the major league coaches, the trainers on Tuesday. They liked how it went. The plan now is for him to throw a sim game later in the week. I mean, the minor league season ends on Sunday. Not a whole lot of reason to send him back to Rochester or anywhere else to do that. Now, if he throws the sim game, everything's fine. The minor league season ends and there's only one place to pitch next week and that's in the big leagues. I don't know if he feels fine. Again, I think there's a psychological reason to want to get him out there. Hey, welcome back. You made it back from Tommy John surgery. All right, go have a nice winter and uh, we view you as a big part of next year's bullpen. If he doesn't, it doesn't mean that that can't all still be true, but there's just that little bit of doubt in your mind. Like, is he actually ready? Is he actually going to be good again? So I want to believe that they'll find a way to get him in there and get him on the roster for some point right there at the end of the season. But He's still got to show that he is worthy of it, and I guess they need to feel like they can afford the roster spot on him and not on somebody else who they might need to pitch more over that final week. Well, next up for the Nats is a team called the Atlanta Braves, who you know, you may have forgotten are actually in the Nats division. The Nats have barely played the Braves this season, but the Nats are about to play seven of the team's final nine regular season games against the Atlanta Braves, who just happen to be the best team in the majors this season and are having one of the best offensive seasons that any team has had in a long time. The Braves entered play on Wednesday with a team OPS plus this season of 124, 10 points higher than the next best team OPS plus the Dodgers 114. 100 is league average with OPS plus, which is uh, league and ballpark adjusted on base percentage plus slugging percentage. A team OPS plus of 124 is staggering. The Braves lead the majors in home runs for this season by miles at 291. If you just look at standard team slugging percentage, the Braves for this season as a team are slugging 501. I mean, if a player is slugging 501, that's great. The Braves as a team are slugging 501. But, you know, on the one hand, if you're a Nats fan, it's a little uh, it's a little concerning what could happen here over these seven games against the Braves or the final nine games of the Nats regular season. But of course, hey, if the Nats are going to get good again, they're going to have to contend with the Braves who have been a machine for years now and basically running the National League East. But boy, I mean, from afar, and that's what you have to say from afar because we've barely seen the Braves this season. But what this team is doing offensively really is amazing. Yeah, it's historic. I think they deserve to be ranked up there with some of the great offenses of all time. And that's really saying something. Real quick, I don't like this part of the the new schedule this year. I was all for reducing the number of division games, which they did. And they added all the interleague games. So you play every team now. I don't like this idea, though, of you play a team in your division twice in April and then twice again in September and not at all in between. There's got to be a better way. You don't have to have these back-to-back weekends playing the same team once in your site, once at theirs. I would hope that MLB can do something about that because I think that really does ruin these division rivalries. And if the Nats were good, I think you'd want to feel like you were really seeing the Braves at multiple points over the course of a season. And they just haven't had that at all. So that that's a little quick aside to that. But this is a daunting task 
to be sure. Now, the Braves have mostly locked up everything. They've already won the division. They haven't clinched home field advantage, but it's pretty safe to say they're going to have it. They've actually started losing some games since clinching, and maybe that edge is off a little bit. Now, I don't know if they're going to turn it back on. Maybe it doesn't matter when you have that lineup facing this pitching staff. You also have Ronald Acuna Jr. on the verge of truly history, 40 homers, and not just 40 steals, but 70 steals. He's going for 40 and 70. It could happen against the Nats. And the remarkable thing, if he did it, the last player to go 40-40 in the big leagues, he did it in D.C. That was Alfonso Soriano in 2006. So we may see history again in D.C. Matt Olson, 50-plus homers. It is a tall task for the Nationals pitching staff. And I think that's why winning these last two games against the White Sox was significant. They got 67 and 68. They need two more to get to 70. That means a two and seven record down the stretch against the two best teams in baseball record-wise, Braves and Orioles. I think that's reasonable to think they can win two of these games. To ask for more than that might be too much to ask for. Final series of the season for the Nats at Nationals Park, a four-game series against the Major League-leading Braves Thursday through Sunday. Game one, Thursday night at 7.05. Jake Irvin will be the Nats starting pitcher. Boy, would it be something if Jake Irvin, with the very encouraging season that he has had, went out there and beat the mighty Braves. And it's going to be Commander's Night at Nationals Park on Thursday night. Josh Harris going to be throwing out the first pitch. So maybe some of that uh, good commander's juju that we've been enjoying with the 2-0 start will uh, be brought over to the Nats. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, including if you would like to sponsor the program, hit us up. Tim Shovers will tell you what uh, we can do for you. That email address again, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We have a website that we invite you to check out to NatsChatPodcast.com at which you can buy a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A reminder, the Second annual Nats Chat Podcast Party happening at Walters Friday evening, October 13th, beginning at 6.30. Thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Visit his site, timnewmark.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. And Soriano sends that one flying. Look out. Home run number 40 on the year for Alfonso Soriano. His second home run here in the series. And the Nationals have used a couple of long balls to get on the board here. It's now an 8-2 ball game. They really want that ball. The fans just threw it back, and the, the Nationals are motioning like crazy to get it. Pat Burrell pointed to the ball girl, and she's going to get it back in. So, I mean, that's some milestone home run for this guy. Well, it's a new career high for him. Plus, now all he needs is one more outfield assist to be a 40 home run. 30 stolen base, 20 outfield assist man.